Welcome back to Alan's Confidential. This is part two of our submission box episode. My name is Talia Rodriguez and I'm currently a second year graduate in the intellectual property team here in Sydney. And my name is Melissa Camp. I'm also a second year graduate and I'm currently rotating through the mergers and acquisitions team in Sydney as well. If you listened to the first part of our two-part episode, you would know that we are answering all the questions that you sent in. And today we're going to be answering all the questions that are directed at the lawyers of the firm. So today we are very, very happy to have with us David Roundtree, a partner in the technology, media and telecommunications team based in Brisbane. So welcome, Dave. Hello. Thanks for having me. We just want to start today's episode by giving an acknowledgement of country. So today we are very lucky to be gathered on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation in our Sydney office. Dave is down from Brisbane, so we have him with us today. Um, and we pay our respects to the elders past, present and continuing on these lovely lands that we gather on today. Dave, did you want to have a chat about Brisbane and, and the traditional lands that you are normally on? I'm originally from the lands we're talking on for today of uh, Gadigal, but at the moment I'm living in Minjin, so pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Also a beautiful part of the land. We will get started with our nightmare fuel segment. So we like to start off every episode a little bit like this, just to ease our listeners' minds about <laughs> the future industry they might uh, find themselves in. So we wanted to know, Dave, as a clerk, what your most embarrassing moment was and what it has been as a partner. There's enough fodder in my history pre-partner that I'll probably just focus on that. Hopefully all of my, <laughs> you know, all of my, you know, most embarrassing mistakes as a partner get kept well and truly under wraps. <laughs> uh, but at the time, and probably still today, I'm sometimes not the greatest and most efficient typer. And so I was like, oh, sometimes I make spell checks. So accept, accept all those spell check changes. Accept, 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 accept. And then the last one said, accept. And I was like, oh, what was that last one? And went back and looked at it. Um, after you'd sent it. After I'd sent clarify, it. Yeah. Wait, and were you just <coughs> banging except, 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 except yeah, Doesn't yeah, that yeah. defeat the purpose of even doing the spell yeah, check in the first look, place? Like, this is not my finest well, that's moment. That's how I got here. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, and I'd, I'd actually spell check my own name and change my own name from David Roundtree to David Rooftree. So first up, why why did Microsoft Word think Rooftree is more acceptable than Roundtree? I don't know. That's a good but, question. And then I was left with this... Awkward conundrum. Do I send another email to the? <laughs> Do I send a second saying, one? Saying sorry, just to be clear. my own name. <laughs> it's actually David Roundtree. I'm not trying to spoof you. Um, <laughs> I just got my own name wrong. Really cementing my status as a moron. <laughs> or do I leave it? Takeaway is that all lawyers actually proofread their emails after they've sent them. Yeah. Which, you know, is obviously a little bit counterintuitive, but <laughs> nothing like oh, reading no, something have, from someone else's I have changed some practices on that one now. I'm, a number of times I cancel out of sending an email. Oh, one more time. <laughs> <laughs> Just one more. Yeah. Especially checking my own name. <laughs> yeah, fa fairly so. Um, <laughs> we might get started with our first question that we've had submitted to us. Is the law as entertaining as they show in TV series or as adventurous as it looks? I mean, I feel like the fair answer is like, no. <laughs> <laughs> to be, How honest to, do you want us to, to be? be? You know, is there's uh, nothing is as good as it is on TV, but uh, it's certainly a very exciting and rewarding and satisfying career. It just, you know, you don't get to montage your way through the hard bits. When we were thinking about this question, I was just thinking that the most disappointing thing is that on TV, uh, paralegals look like Meghan Markle and in real life they look like me. So that's <laughs> something that I also have to reckon with. But yeah. um, 
I, I do think, agree. It's never never quite as glamorous as it no. was made to look on the big screens. The most unrealistic part, in my opinion, is how quickly things move in a yeah. TV episode. Like the fact that a whole hearing can happen in one episode, like in 50 minutes, it'll just go from the amount of being filed and proceedings initiated and then it's finished, there's a judgment and it's all done in under 50 minutes. They make all-nighters look fun. They're not fun. <laughs> no one likes staying up all night. It's terrible. <laughs> Fair answer. The next question, which is a very nice segue from your previous answer, is how many hours do you actually work and how has this changed as your career has progressed? (laughs) I like the word actually was thrown into that question. How many hours do you actually work? Yeah, it's definitely the operative word in that sentence, wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Look, I think everyone knows it's a busy and demanding career and it, you know, requires a lot of dedication and and effort to kind of succeed and hopefully that's what's happening in my career. (laughs) I think, you know, there's the way in which you work and how you work changes a bit as you change and as you grow in your role. So, you know, you have, I think it's kind of almost less about the thing that really changes is not so much about how hard you work, but how you control your work and how you control what you've got on your plate. And, you know, the more senior you are, you have more responsibility, but you also have more control and agency about how you do your work. And so my days, you know, and the office will frequently finish at five because I go home and see my family and have dinner with my kid and watch him like squirt water at me from the bath. Um, That doesn't mean I won't have to log on and get stuff done because we've got client expectations and client Mm. demands. And, you know, that balance is what works for me. And, you know, I think no one's going to pretend that it's always a nine to five job working in a corporate law firm at Allen's, but it's like what it is about is that balance and flexibility that works for you. What's your guys' experience? Yeah, absolutely. I think mine is quite similar. Obviously, after being admitted, you've got a lot more freedom and flexibility with the hours that you work. And as you said, it's not always a nine to five. I think we all know that. But in saying that, there's definitely days where I'll finish early, go home. I've got nothing left to do. And there's days where I'll watch the sunset from my office. We'll have dinner at work um, and we'll be, you know, getting things done until the morning. And I think that's just the nature of our job that it can change so suddenly. But I think the most important thing is that you are working because there's things to be done and you're working together as a team. You're not just forced to sit at your desk until midnight when you have no work to do. It's not like that. You work hard when there's things to be done and otherwise that's it. Head home. Yeah, I agree. And I found that even in the most busy periods that I've had, if I say to someone like I've got a family's dinner tonight or I'm going to duck out to the gym for an hour because I really just need to go and decompress for a bit or, you know, I've got a friend's birthday event that I can't miss. I've never had anyone turn around and say, no, sorry, too bad. Like as Tali was saying, you work in a team environment and there's always someone there who's happy to say like, well, I'll take one for the team today and you go and do whatever you need to do. Yeah, I'd probably just make two observations there. One is the first is like really the most important thing you can do to make sure that you know you can live a balanced life is communication with your team and with the people you're working with because that communication and transparency about when deliverables are required when you're going to achieve them how you're tracking and then when you're not going to you know if if necessary when you're not going to be available and what what you have is the kind of clear boundaries around parts of your life having that as a clear discussion and expectation within the people you work with is just really drives you being able to preserve that and if you're not communicating clearly and that goes for everyone within the chain then that's where it falls down and breaks down and people then start feeling like they can't do it so communication is i think the number one i think the other thing that people have said to me in the past and and i think i've kind of kept in mind throughout my career is the kind of view that your yeah, career is a marathon not a sprint mm-hmm. and yeah. you know there will be times that you will be sprinting 
you can't sprint all the time. Um, <laughs> I, I, I know that from running very badly. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's really for longevity in your career, you need to be able to have balance. You need to be able to have the things that are important to you and maintain them and, and live a, you know, frankly, just live a sustainable life. So it's sometimes a tricky balance in a client service business where we're, we're here to meet our clients' needs. And sometimes those needs can require, you know, a lot of us and, and our lawyers, but that's what we do and that's why we do it. You need to find a balance. Otherwise, you're not going to have a long and successful career. Yeah. Mm. I think on that too, you made a good point about communication. And it, I think that what I didn't realise before starting here was that it works both ways as well. So there's a sub question here that says, are you expected to complete work outside of hours, uh, for example, on weekends? And I think it's really important to note that when you are receiving work from someone, they are going to tell you what their expectations are. Um, and if not, of course, you can seek clarification. So I always make a point of asking, do you need this tonight? Do you need this tomorrow? When does this need to be done? And I think everyone pitches in to make sure that as much of it can obviously get done while you're at work. We all knock it over together to avoid us having to, whether it's work late or work outside of our normal hours. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you ever don't know when something is due, then that's probably on you to find out. Like something you probably should have been told, but if you haven't been told and you haven't gone to find out, then you need to do that. Like that's having that clarity is so critical because it drives expectations. If you aren't communicating as to when things are due, and this is a thing for senior lawyers as well, like if you're not communicating as to when things are due and you've got this internal expectation, how can you expect someone else to meet it? And at the same time, how can you deliver to a timeline if you don't know what it is? So um, that's the only way that you can effectively manage. In my practice, you know, we're juggling a lot of different matters at any one time, you know, I reprioritize what I need to do on like an hourly basis. You know, I come into work <laughs> with a to-do list that looks nice and clear. I'll just do that and that and that. And I reckon like 85% of the time, it's like out the window within an hour of the, the day starting. The days yeah. that I've opened a document and been like, today is the day. Yeah. I am going to finish this document and it's going to be so good. And within the first hour of the day, absolutely, it's not. very clear <laughs> that that document is getting shut and that's going to be a tomorrow and or later in the week problem. Yeah. And it just never quite eventuates. <laughs> One of the other questions we had sort of more or less under this subcategory was when do you get your own office? <laughs> when did you get your office, Dave? <laughs> Well, my experience is not necessarily a universal one because when I started in the firm, I had a corner office um, to myself wow. for six months of my big. first first year of. Uh, so, did you, you feel know, like a big roller, like just um, strut in every day? Look, I think I developed many office. many bad habits um, that that. Um, but you can't <laughs> do in the shared space. Yeah, exactly. Some people might say I'm too loud, and I, you know, it could be. I get that one as well. Yeah, it could be mm. brought back to the fact that I had no one else around me, so I shouted at people <laughs> in several offices then, away. Really? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But so look, I don't think that's a representative sample of uh, when you <laughs> no, get an office. No, not at all. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and I mean, it's, frankly, the answer is like depends on space. Yeah, it depends <laughs> on time. And there's more of a trend of, especially with the number of people who are working flexibly and flexible hours, having really, really big offices to yourself where no one's in them all the time is actually not very efficient. So sharing offices is becoming more common. But like, if you want an easy answer, senior associate. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say in the team at the moment, there's everyone from first year grads in office through to associates, senior associates, right up managing associates, partners, every yeah. single layer of the tree. I think someone has an office, but it's just been, yeah, like you said, because a partner might not be in all the time. So they've got an associate or a, a graduate in their office, but then the rest of the graduates are in the open floor plan. And then some of the associates yeah. share offices together. There's very few people who actually 
have an office just to themselves now. Yeah, and I don't think it's necessarily there's like a bright line at least. No. You know, and I think it probably – I think actually – probably differs office to office as well. Like mm. the, the the makeup of the Brisbane office and who has offices is quite is different to the Sydney office. And so, yeah, it'll come. <laughs> so there you have it. Your answer is it depends. It depends. And in the Lawyer's meantime, invest answer. in a really good set of noise cancelling headphones. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the next question that we had come through was whether Alan's partners compete in quotation marks, over the working hours of junior lawyers. So I'll give my take as a junior lawyer and then I'll hand it over to you. Personally, it has been a no from my perspective. I think being in the structure that we're in where it's you're not in a silo, I think you as a junior have a lot more autonomy over the kind of work you want to do. I'm very interested to hear your take, whether at the partnership level you are competing over having certain people on your teams, but I've found that matters are really staff based on capacity. It's not competing over me as an individual so much as it is who has capacity, this new work has come in, who has an interest in this area, who has an expertise in this area, and who has the time to actually do this piece of work to a high standard rather Maybe than... no one's just competing over us personally and David's about to drop a bombshell and we're yeah. going <laughs> to... Yeah, I was well, at that meeting If the, the podcast day. cuts off really quickly <laughs> after this, you'll <laughs> you know, know exactly happened. why. Yeah. <laughs> actually, do we actually arm wrestle for, um, <laughs> for various for juniors? Egg and spoon um, race down the Allen's corridors. Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm, I fight dirty as well. Um, <laughs> no, you'd think that... I mean, any other firms who have a kind of siloed model, then obviously that doesn't happen. And I guess, but I think with the model of not having siloed teams to specific partners, the whole point is for people to have a wide range of experience and develop a wide range of skills and get opportunities to learn from a wide range of people. I, I still learn from my fellow partners all the time. And so, like, a, you know, that's that's not a learning experience that stops and that's a, everyone will benefit from getting that more experience. So. I mean, that's not to say that someone won't occasionally be like, mm, it's time to, you know, let someone else use that person. Um, <laughs> but I mean, yeah. Playing uh, favourites. Uh, no, I, well, it's, it's really important not to pay favourites because as Mel pointed out, work comes in at different times and the most important thing is that the work is done efficiently and effectively for the client and that also we balance out the workload of our teams so that it doesn't, it's not a good outcome if someone's at 120% and someone's at 80%. Like that's just a, that's negative for everyone involved. So, and that's why there are, there are like a number of structures and systems in place that the firm has about, you know, workload allocation. There's specific partners who are responsible in different groups for workload allocation, for sitting around and thinking about it and just taking that, you know, more of a macro level. The challenge with, that can be for, particularly for juniors with, you know, our model is that because you don't, have a siloed model you don't necessarily have one person who knows what you're doing all the time you are accountable to two three four five six different partners and so like they don't have a full overview so that's why we need to the kind of flip side of that is we need to have processes in place to monitor and manage how people's workload are what people have got on what they can take on you know in our team we have a we're always trying to innovate on this really but look to do a form which people like what have I got on this week what am I anticipating I got on next week and also like what are the things that I'd like to do and so when a partner gets new matter in and they're like who do I staff on this you can actually like oh well this person's expressed interest in this type of work and that's just like a you know easy way of us keeping tabs on the way different people 
are looking to do and the experiences they want to get. So it does mean you have to build those processes to make it work, but yeah, no arm wrestles yet, <laughs> yet. I think that comes back to what you're saying before about one communication and it is a top-down and bottom-up approach of expressing what kind of work you're actually interested in doing and what your hours are actually looking like, who you're working with, what other partners there are. So then the partners from the top down can say, okay, well, I know what these people are working on. I know what they're interested in working on and make sure that it filters both ways so that as a partner, you have people working on your matters who are kind of keen and aren't getting overworked so that you're actually getting deliverables on time and by people who are keen to be doing them. But then also as a grad getting the, or as a junior or associate, whatever level you are, getting the experience that you actually want to be getting and getting that broad kind of cross section of matters happening within the team. So it definitely works both ways. And I've had the same experience this year. I get the pretty much exact same work form. So it seems to be a consistent theme across the firm, but what was your capacity this week? What matters are you working on? Who are the partners on those matters? What's coming up and what are you interested in being involved in Mm -hmm. down the line? And I think that's worked really well from my perspective as a junior in the firm. I've, I've liked that model. The next question, and I'm positive that this answer is going to help me because <laughs> I feel like I still don't get this 100% right. Question is, how does billing work? Do I really record every single thing I do during the day? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I think the first point is like, bill all your time, particularly on client work. So don't self-censor, I think is like the most important thing. What do you mean by that, Dave? Sorry, self-censor. Don't, don't self-censor. So if it takes you six hours to do something, but you think you're worried that six hours, you don't want someone to see that you spent six hours, you, you post three hours. That kind of doesn't really help anyone. You know, mm. ultimately it's for the partners, you know, in terms of managing the overall budget and that's, it's important, but that is partners and the senior lawyers to kind of manage that. And that's why there's that importance of communication and transparency. But if time is being kind of artificially inflated or deep, well, never artificially inflated, <laughs> to be clear, um, but artificially deflated based on people thinking that it's going to look bad, that they right. worked, spent for six hours, or sometimes people are doing it because they think, oh, I know the budget for this and I know that I was only budgeted, you know, it was like this thing and so I shouldn't post that time. But that's like just don't self-censor because throws kind of everything out in terms of managing those things effectively. And, you know, ultimately if there are write-off decisions that need to be made, then those are the decisions that are to be made for the partners, not necessarily for the juniors. I guess, so that's like number one, like post all your time every day. (laughs) And I guess then from like the rest of it, there's a bunch of work that we do during the day that is not captured as client billable work, but there are still metrics and things within the firm that value and record on those types of things. And so is it as highly monitored as, you know, your client billable work? Probably no, especially if it's various levels of productive administrative work, productive non-billable, but ultimately it's important to do that so that people can kind of get a sense of what you're doing during the day. If your timesheet just has two hours billable work, nothing else, well, then the question is, what did you do for the rest of the day? So I think there's a level of common sense about it. But You don't bill for lunch, to be clear. <laughs> you don't bill when you're not working. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if you spend two hours writing a BD article, like that should be recorded and recognised because the firm kind of tracks time people spend on productive non-billable work like business development work. So, yes, is the short answer. So we don't record every single thing we do in the day, but we do record most of it. So some administrative tasks are not billed per se. It might just be filtering through your emails and they could be emails from the firm of upcoming events or 
and things like that aren't billable. But if you then go and actually attend that presentation, for example, that would be time that you would record to your knowledge and learning billing record. There's also business development work, which you do, which might be putting out an article, which is also captured within your billing. And it's not billable time to the client. It's just within the system so that Allens can track what kind of work that their lawyers are doing and how their time is being allocated between their matter work with clients, as well as their investment generally in business development type projects or other investment work, like with our pro bono partners or like with our different committees or like this lovely podcast that we get to do every month or so. But we have a really easy system to keep track of our time as well. So when you log onto the computer, it pops up and I always call it playing because you press play and then you press pause. And I don't know that that's (laughs) the best way to explain it. You're the only person I've ever heard who is referred to it like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, take from that what you will, but I always press play on my timers every day and it just keeps track of what you're doing. It's really easy. You can kind of have your matters that you're working on set up there and you can also have business development and a bunch of other things sitting in your timer. And you basically just hit pause and hit play between those different timers through the day as you switch between tasks. And if you duck out for your lunch break or to go to the gym or whatever, you just pause them all. You don't have to track your time not sitting at your desk. So... (laughs) It's not like 1984. It's all fine. It's just to keep a track of what you're doing because those things also feed into your performance as well. You like to be able to say to your partners at the end of the year, I've done all this client work for you, but I've also helped you with all of these other things as well. And I'm sure the partners like to keep track of that as well. And the answer to how long is the lunch break? I've definitely taken a long 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 lunch. lunch. I wouldn't say there is a specified time. I've just come back from a long. Yes, you had. Yeah, Mel had a very long client lunch today, um, and I'm glad she turned up um, to this (laughs) recording. Yeah, thank you. That's big, big props to her. I am full of pork belly (laughs) right now. It's very good. The answer is it's it's flexible. I feel like it's it depends on your day, what you're doing. I mean, there's times where I've ducked out to get something quick because I've been really busy, and other times where Mel and I have ducked out for you know two hours or so ducked out you duck out for two hours no set answer for that yeah the next questions two questions we had were about our alliance with Linklaters Uh, so the first one was when do Alan's lawyers get to work at Linklaters is it during their graduate period or is it only after they're admitted so before we answer that we'll just say that there's two really good episodes on our alliance and our relationship with Linklaters that we can refer you to so there was one in September 2019 about our alliance with Linklaters and then there was another one in March 2020 which was quite ironic that it was recorded then before travel was banned but it's called the Allens and the Linklaters Global Alliance that was in March of 2020. I know Speaking from personal experience, we've had multiple graduates within our cohort go over while we've still been doing our rotations. So I think as a graduate, there's definitely an opportunity to go over to Linklaters. Usually it's your second year of the graduate program that you go to Linklaters and there's a range of options between London, Singapore, Hong Kong or the Dubai offices. And it's usually around seven people. Up to seven people. Yeah, yeah. nationally who go. So this year the cohort was made up from people across the offices nationally. That's not just from Sydney. But as you get more advanced through your career as an associate and a senior associate, it's less structured as in you can go really whenever you think it's a good time in your career to go. So as I understand it, the firm is quite supportive. If you get to a stage in your career where you're keen to go over to Linklaters, then you just reach out to your performance coach and they put you in contact with the necessary people within the team who I must admit I'm 
not sure about because I have yeah. not reached out to go to Linklater's. But <laughs> um, I, think, I think the only caveat to that is I think it's also like subject to the business needs of the like Linklater's team. So the, gra- the, mm. the graduate processes are like a formal process where there's a kind of set allocation of those people who kind of go rotate through. Whereas, you know, there are, because of the strength of the Alliance, it's a really great way of, you know, staying within the network while continuing your career overseas, but it's like not necessarily like a fait accompli. So it'll depend on if there's no kind of business need for the Linklater's team, it doesn't necessarily, that automatically happens. But it's my experience is not very common for it to not work out. Yeah. I know of at least four people from the mergers and acquisitions team who've gone over since December. They finished up in December and have gone over. Oh, wow. Yeah. In the last two months. In the last yeah, two wow. months. Okay. That, that's just off the top of my head that yeah. I can recall. But then I know within my first rotation in competition and consumer, and even when I was a clerk during that team, we had a Linklater's secondee, two Linklater's secondees actually over when in Sydney when I was a clerk. And then since then I've seen another two people leave from Sydney and go over to London and then another two people come back from London into the Sydney office. And that's just from my experience of people that I've seen come and go. So it definitely happens a lot more than I even thought it would. Like going through the process, you hear a lot about the alliance, but you don't know what it looks like in practice. But in practice, as far as I've seen, there's been a lot of back and forth between the two firms overseas. Our next question that we had is how do you actually get clients and does Alan's help you do this? And I recall this is something that I was stressing a little bit over for God knows what reason, because now that I'm here, I'm like, that's a bit ridiculous. I don't think I should be stressing about that as a junior lawyer. And partly that's because it comes quite naturally. And I think it can build quite organically, despite what people might think. So everyone from your colleagues that you met at university, people that you used to work with, people at Allen's that might actually leave later on or second out elsewhere. There's junior events for networking. One of them's called Arena. That was a lot of fun. It didn't actually feel like networking. I hate that term. It was actually just dinner, drinks, food was great. And just socializing out on a weekend when you meet someone at, you know, for example, a party you're invited to and you might meet someone who also works corporate world. So I think that it just comes from building organic relationships with people and, and making an effort to check in with them. Yeah, I don't think there's there's not like a one way that you get clients. Mm. Uh, I mean, the firm has obviously got a number of very long-standing client relationships and sources of referral and ex-alumni, um, you know, that go out into the workforce and, you know, we end up working with them, which we always love. But I mean, look, you're right. Like as a junior lawyer, no one's, it's literally like nothing, nowhere in your performance metrics is have brought in five clients. clients. (laughs) Uh, It's just not the what, like, you know, that's not within the expectations of what we have for our junior lawyers. You know, this is a part of your career where you're looking on development and learning and technical skills. I guess, does Allen's help you get clients? It doesn't just give you clients, uh, but what there are lots of formal programs to help with skills in terms of business development work and what that looks like, how to be thinking about what client needs are, how to be how to be proactive, what are some of the ways you can differentiate yourself with clients. Um, it's really a really important part of the formal training that we we do for our lawyers, particularly at various like important stage gates. So senior associate promotion, there's a training course, same particularly with managing associate as well, because as you get more senior, it just becomes a, a more a bigger part of your job and more important 
how do you do it? Sometimes by doing great work and that is it. Sometimes it can be formal structured pursuits. Sometimes, you know, there's there's a bunch of formal processes the firm has that look at different sectors of the economy, different types of clients and, you know, creates really structured, targeted programs to try and say, well, how do we get involved in that opportunity? How can we assist with that project? Who are the people we need to talk to? How do we get in front of them? How do we pitch to be involved in that? And those can be sometimes years in planning to get you know involved in particular major like nation building projects that we want to and, and we kind of think well where do we where do we fit where do we want to pitch ourselves so there's reams and reams of processes that the partners do particularly around different client experience activities so yes i think in short Allen's does help it has a fantastic business development team that it supports the various practice groups and the various partners as well as a junior your probably prime focus is just doing a good job. Just and learn. Then, just learn. <laughs> learn. And, <laughs> learn the and then the parts of your job that are that. I think what I will say, the sooner you start looking to try and develop those skills, the earlier in your career, the better that's going to put you in good stead. Like just don't just be thinking about what's the piece of work that I've got in front of me, but what's the opportunity for the firm. And that can, as a junior lawyer, can look like a bunch of really proactive things. Like just thinking proactively about the clients that your partners are working for and offering like, should we offer this insight to a client? Should, you know, this piece of news has come in that affects this client? Were you aware of it, partner X? There's no limitation to the independent thought and activity that you can do. And I guess that would be the one thing to say is that you really encourage people to to be proactive about that because it's a real differentiator. It's not like an easy skill necessarily. So the earlier you get muscle memory on it, the better. <laughs> no, that's great advice. You're never too young, I think. And I think the firm is really receptive to these things. I'm going to drag you into a story here that I have to tell David. So, Oh, good. I love stories. <laughs> Last year, I think there was a lot of movement where there was an IP case about kind of non-fungible tokens and the metaverse was happening. There was a lot of movement in the cryptocurrency space about advertising of cryptocurrencies and the sale of cryptocurrencies and initial coin offerings that were kind of being put out by ASIC. And there was kind of a bunch of us who were originally doing small business development pieces within our individual teams, the IP team, the competition team, the TMT team, as juniors who'd kind of been delegated down these business development research tasks who kind of got chatting and realized that amongst us, we were all doing similar interchanging things. So we thought, why don't we just get on a call and kind of come together and see if we can put something together. And that was one of the first times that I'd actually spoken to you again. You'd just come back from parental leave. And I recall it vividly because you answered the call with a tea towel slung over your shoulder. You'd just been baking sourdough bread. Um, and we had a good good chin wag with a group of us about cryptocurrencies and NFTs and the metaverse and how we could kind of put out something that maybe was an interconnected business development piece from all of our practices rather than just doing it in isolation and what clients we were trying to really target with this rather than just a big broadcast message. And I think that's where as a junior, it's important as well to reach out to your own network within the firm, because a lot of the time, if your team is thinking that something's, you know, an up and coming trend, it's very likely that a lot of other teams across the firm are also thinking down the same line. And you'll probably more often than not find other juniors that are aligned or doing similar tasks. And if you can show that initiative and come together, you can come up with some really good work products or even just build your connections within the firm. And I think that's a really important thing to remember as a junior as well. I'm pleased that the the bread baking has stuck in your memory. It's stuck so firmly because I (laughs) have always wanted to get into sourdough bread 
baking, but yeah. the, the sourdough starters just seemed a bit of a, a jump too far in my... We can have an offline chat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice segue into our... No, not at all. <laughs> nice segue. This is actually, How uh, do you make sourdough, a sourdough Sourdough started chat. Uh, <laughs> Secret secret sourdough business. Well, you know what? The next question is actually, what if you don't like either of your rotations? And I always joke that I really want to do a rotation with the catering team just because I think that would be Jan so much fun. Jan is so good. Yeah, they're phenomenal. That's our catering. I think she's like the head of catering. I don't know what her precise role is and I must find out, but all I know is she whips up a mean anything that you ever want to eat. The organisational skills that I could transfer into matter management skills from the catering team would just be out of this world. Anyway, David, as a partner, <laughs> we'll let you answer this question. So if a graduate doesn't like either of their two rotations, what happens? Well, it's obviously a bit unfortunate, um, but <laughs> look, I think first, I think you know, there's it's a real challenging juggling act to try and give people all of their top preferences. But the HR team and people in the development team works really hard to to try and balance all the competing interests to give people an opportunity to do one of the things that, that they really like. I'd say it's reasonably rare, in my experience, for people to get to the end of their graduate rotation and just come to the conclusion that they absolutely have no capacity or desire to to do a career path in either of the places that they've ended up with. And I think, you know, this is more of an aside, but coming in with really preconceived ideas of what you want to do is probably not necessarily the right way to think about it. It's coming into, you know, whatever you're doing with an open mind and almost invariably you'll find that if you're interested in it, it'll be interesting. But saying that, there are some people who've kind of come and said, oh, at the end of, I haven't had this opportunity and that's really important. And I think in those cases where there are those circumstances, then the firm does try and accommodate it. And there is a third rotation as an you know option in certain circumstances. But I guess in, in my experience, it's been, I can only think really think two or three people who've done it since I've been at the firm since like 2000 and something. I'm not going to name 2000 and Nine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to work out if it's clerkship. 2009 is clerkship. 2012 was graduate cohort. I think on that point, Dave, that you don't know many people that have done it, neither do I, but I think one of the main reasons for that is because of the structure of our rotations themselves. So people might know that they are 12 months long and we do two of them, but I think because our practice groups are so broad, you're doing so much within that 12 months. So for example, last year I was in the disputes and investigations team and that was for my first graduate rotation. But I touched on class actions, I touched on insurance, anti-money laundering, director's duties, corporations law, misleading and deceptive conduct, easements. I did easements. There was so many different areas of general disputes that I did that I think it just covers so much and there's so much depth to that 12 months that it can often feel like, you know, multiple smaller rotations because of the experience you get. That's really true, Talia. And I think we did a deep dive into this with Ben and Caitlin last year, looking at how the rotation structure really kind of impacts your experience as a graduate at Allen's, but similarly in competition and consumer, I know that because they have a combined practice doing both the merger clearances and the litigation work, as well as a lot of advisory, it felt like I was doing multiple rotations within the one. And I know that that experience was shared with our guests and with yourself when we did that episode. So again, if you're interested in what that kind of looks like and how that impacts your graduate rotations, jump back a few episodes and have a listen. Next question is, why doesn't Allen's have a dedicated pro bono practice? that you can rotate through? I think there are definitely some firms out there who do and it's not the way we structure it. And 
I, you know, I think the the Allen's perspective is we we do actually want all of our lawyers to have the opportunity to do pro bono work. We think it's an important part of their development, gives you exposure to other types of work that don't necessarily fall within your practice group. I think the important thing to recognise is that the way we kind of recognise pro bono work within the firm is that we, for the purposes of time recording and the purposes of like, you know, incentives for lawyers, it's treated no differently from billable work. So an hour spent on pro bono work is the same as hours spent on client work for the purposes of whether or not a lawyer hits their targets. So that I think effectively is a kind of indicative of, you know, that we consider it an important investment we value. And so it's not just something that we think sits within a couple of people in the firm to do. So look, I think partly uh, an issue about providing that diverse opportunity and also seeing it as a, a, a thing that's really valued throughout the whole cohort. One of the things this question made me reflect on was the type of pro bono work that we do. And I'm currently in the intellectual property team and the pro bono work I have done has focused on, for example, the copyright infringement of Indigenous art. Now, the IP team can do that kind of work, but I dare say if you hand it over to someone who's in mergers and acquisitions, they're probably not familiar with copyright laws and it might take them maybe a little bit longer to wrap their head around that advice and to provide that in a client-facing format. So it's actually really nice that we can give that specialist advice and make the most of our Allen's lawyers and how experienced they are in each area. So we've got corporate advice for non-government organisations, for example, charities, planning and development teams will take the advice when it comes to Indigenous land councils. And as I said, the IP team might handle something to do with arts law. So I think it's really nice that one, it's opened up to all lawyers you get so much exposure uh, and development as a junior lawyer working on a pro bono matter because you can often take on a lot more responsibility. But I think importantly, we're also drawing on the diversity of every team that we have and often roping in people from numerous teams to help out on one matter and really just making the most of all that we've got to give. Yeah, I think that's that's right. I think it's you know trying to deliver the best service for yeah. the people who've got the skills. So you know, in my area, we do a lot of privacy advice in a pro bono context. So yeah, I think that is a really important factor as to trying to find the right people to do the right work and you know make sure that work's done efficiently as well. And while we don't have one single team in the firm that does pro bono, we do have people who are dedicated to the pro bono work within the team. So we have a national coordinator and a team that kind of helps support them who looks at pro bono work as it comes through and considers who is the best person in this firm to be doing this work. And they are the ones who then go and reach out to people and say, hi, this new piece of work has come through. We consider you, that you and your team are really well placed for that. Do you think that that's correct? Does it fall within your remit? So there definitely are people in the firm still who are dedicated to making sure that the pro bono kind of work is functioning well, is getting divvied out, is being responded to effectively, but it's just that it's not within one team necessarily. It's within a few people who then are responsible for sending it out to all of the team so that everyone is involved in it. And then I guess the other thing is that we offer secondments to our pro bono partners as well. So especially as a junior, I think there's so many opportunities to get involved in pro bono that you might not necessarily have if there was a dedicated practice. Because if you're at a firm which only has a dedicated practice, if you don't get the rotation through that practice, it might not necessarily give you the same kind of incentives or opportunities to getting involved in pro bono work. Whereas because of the way that our team is structured, we have not only the work that we've already spoken about, which is kind of sent out to the best place team to do that work, 
We also have pro bono partners such as the Refugee Advice and Casework Service, Arts Law, the Public Interest Advocacy Centre, Equality Australia, Fitzroy Legal Service, a number of other organisations who we do work with that is just open to anyone in the firm to work on. So within that, generally speaking, you can either go out and do a secondment, so you can go and work at that organisation for a few months, or you can go out and do a one-day clinic. And anyone who comes in during that clinic, you can kind of carry on their matters. So I know with the Public Interest Advocacy Centre, for example, I've done a lot of their work over the last year, and generally you'll have a one-day clinic, but you might have two or three clients come and see you within that clinic for various different matters, from kind of property disputes right through to different fines that they need help with or advocating with the New South Wales Guardian and Trustee, for example. And those matters just keep rolling on on an ongoing basis after you've done the clinic for however long it takes to get that across the line. So there's a lot of opportunities as a junior to get quite involved. Our next question, I think it's going to be a quick and easy one. Can you take time off after starting or completing the grad program to travel or study? And I remember I deferred my graduate offer before I started to travel and take a gap year. Plot twist, didn't happen. We had a pandemic. And I remember telling my mum I deferred my offer and I'll leave out the profanities, but she basically said, in this economy, what are you doing? We're about to have, you know, huge downturn. There's a pandemic going on. You need that job. I remember saying, no, it's going to be fine. They'll bring out a vaccine or something. Like this is probably smaller than very it Very prescient. I was very optimistic, um, probably for the first time ever, stupidly so. Obviously, <laughs> I quickly scrambled back to Alan's and said, kidding, I am not going to defer. Please take me. And it was fine. But the short answer is yes, you can Take time off before you start the grad program, whether it's to apply for a tip staff or associate role, whether it's to travel, and you could do the same thing after your graduate program. Most important thing, as we've said throughout this episode, is just communicating that with the relevant people. The next question that we got was, what is the most important thing to remember if you have an interview for a clerkship? So I'm going to throw this one over to Dave to start with, because I assume you do a lot more interviews than me, which is zero. So anything more than that <laughs> you've, is... You've attended interviews. I've attended <laughs> interviews, yes. You've been interviewed. <laughs> I don't necessarily know if I've got like a, a one tip. I mean, I think be authentic is, is probably important because you want to be an authentic version of yourself and find a place that that works for you. That's not to say that you need to be the most exuberant version of whatever authenticity (laughs) is for you. You need to be authentic within the context of being professional. And so being yourself is, and being able to find a place that you think you can be yourself and you think is going to work for you and that will work vice versa, that, you know, works culturally and is cultural fit, I think is is really important just in terms of like assessing a place and it's a way for people to assess you as well. Like do your values align? It's a bit of an intangible, but is there a... Is the vibe right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's just I the mean, vibe of the thing. I mean, especially, you know, in the, in the context of clerkships where, you know, clerkship candidates are interviewing at six or seven different places or trying to decide what's the difference between corporate law firm A and corporate law firm B who all say they do the same thing. How do I tell them apart? And it is something intangible sometimes that yeah. will drive you to make a decision one way or the other. And so often that's probably going to be about people and fit. I guess the other one, just be prepared, you know. <laughs> get there on time. <laughs> yeah, get there on time. Don't uh, be prepared to answer questions about things that are on your CV. That's probably like it's kind of 101 stuff. You know, don't like, you know, it's always, you know, if you've got a cover letter that, you know, where you mention a case, just 
be prepared that someone might ask you about Actually, the case. Actually, I've read it and know about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a double-edged sword doing those things. So hold it by the hilt, if, to extend the analogy. Um, <laughs> I don't think actually that makes sense as an analogy, but anyway. So, yeah, I just just kind of all the usual stuff about being prepared and being kind of diligent in the way you prepare for an interview and the questions you might be expected to ask. I think I'd just say back yourself and have faith and courage in yourself that you do have a lot to offer and you are worthy of the time. I think as well on your point of authenticity, that just reminded me I was very recently last week, I think it was at an event, an awards event with someone from P&D, Kajol, if you're listening, she will remember this story. We were talking to someone from EY and he was in the recruitment division of the firm and he was telling us a story. Why I asked, I said, you know, what's the craziest thing that's ever happened in an interview? And he said that someone was playing the guitar shirtless and then read some poems. And I think, Pardon? yeah, that that was my my jaw dropped. He hit, actually hit the. And table. this was an interview for EY. That's correct. The consulting firm, just to clarify for anyone listening. Accounting and audit. So and I, I think that yeah, be authentic. But I think you made a very good point of staying within the realm of professionalism because that clearly just blew out the spectrum of authenticity so far yeah. that it just... you got to get past yeah, the I just thought that probation was a, period yeah. before you get your kid <laughs> off right. and start playing the guitar. I thought that was a really good um, anecdote just you to drop. You never start, take your yeah, kid <laughs> off and start playing the guitar in a professional context. Yeah. That's fair advice. I think one of the two pieces of advice that I got th- going through the clerkship program was one, if you're in the interview, someone's already looked at your CV and thought that you're good enough to work at the firm. That's why they're interviewing you in the first place. And really, they just want to test what's on your CV, which if it's all honest, shouldn't be a problem. You should be able to talk to any of it. And to just make sure that you're the right fit. And I think that was what you were saying, Dave, and something that definitely stood out to me is when you go in, you're so unsure. You've applied for all these firms. You've spoken to a few people at careers fairs, but trying to differentiate firms from their websites is so challenging. But I think by the end of the process, having gone through a few rounds of interviews and having gone to a different number of cocktail events or firm events that had been put on, you do get a sense for the firms and there's no right or wrong answer, but you will generally finish that process knowing what felt good for you and the the cocktail nights that you walked out of thinking, wow, I just had so many great conversations and I can't believe how quickly the night's gone and I don't really want to leave. And others that you're sitting there every 10 minutes looking at your watch going, (laughs) all right, (laughs) get me out. (laughs) This is really dragging. And that was so stark for me and I don't think I expected it to be, but it really is just the vibe of the thing and knowing what you're looking for. I think the second piece of advice that I got was know why you want to do commercial law because you're going to get asked that in the interview and if you don't know the answer, the answer probably is you don't know why you want to do commercial law, so why are you bothering in the first place? Are you just doing it because it's clerkship season and everyone else is doing it or are you doing it because you actually are interested in it? And that was really interesting for me because I know it's very easy when you're at uni and already working in a paralegal role and everyone is going through this process of applying for clerkships that you can get a little bit caught up in the bandwagon of, oh, it's clerkship season and just start frantically applying. But I think really sitting back and as cliche as it sounds, spending some time with yourself thinking, why am I actually applying for these jobs and what about it actually interests me? is really important because then when you show up to your interviews, no question that you get asked is going to throw you because you've already done some time thinking about why you actually really do want that job. Um, And those two pieces of advice, I think, carried me through all of my clerkship interviews. So do with them what you will. (laughs) (laughs) 
One of our next questions is, are there any schemes or programs for new law graduates in Port Moresby in Papua New Guinea? So we've spoken to our team over there. In short, yes, there is. So we've heard that students complete a one-year program with the Legal Training Institute over there once they've finished their law degree, and that's similar to the um, practical legal training you do in Australia. And after you finish that program, you can then apply for an Allen's graduate program, and it's quite similar to the process here in Australia. And in recent years, uh, our Port Moresby office has taken two to three students each year. And our final question, which segues nicely from our previous one, was does Allen's hire international students? So we had questions from someone in New Zealand, from someone in Nigeria, and just general questions about hiring international students. So Mel, do you want to answer that one? Sure. So Allen's does accept applications from international students or lawyers as long as they have the necessary visa to work in Australia. And if you do have the necessary visa to work in Australia, then the application process itself does not differ to Australian students or lawyers. The firm offers a really flexible interviewing process over Teams or Zoom to make the process easier for people based outside of Australia. So you don't have to worry about, you know, flying in or out or anything like that. Um, And I know that a lot of Australian candidates even are overseas, either on uni exchange or holidays or doing some kind of mooting competition during the interview process. So it's very common for our early careers recruitment team to be doing interviews with candidates across time zones. So definitely do not feel um, awkward to ask the question to have a virtual interview or ask for the time zones that suit you. And I know from personal experience, we've met students from New Zealand at our recent recruitment events. I will add that the precise visa requirements are quite complicated and we don't want to answer this question in a way that is misleading and seeming like it is going to be a definite yes. So we definitely recommend getting in contact with the recruitment team for whatever role you're going for ahead of applying to give them some additional context about your particular circumstances, the visa that you're on, how long that visa might last for or whatever the case may be so that you can get an accurate answer for your situations before going through the application process. Well, that brings us to the end of our second part of our submissions episode. Dave, thank you so much for your time, wisdom and insight. We appreciate it deeply. My pleasure. It's been great being here. And hopefully more sourdough bread breaking on the horizon. I look (laughs) forward to it. You're making me feel guilty. I'm going to have to restart. (laughs) Thanks, guys. It's been great being on.